Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. Paul then turns to the Philippians and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism, but their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution, but they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament texts, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1-3, through 3, and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. 
This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the king of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus, because they are both examples of people living out Jesus' story. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, who the Philippians sent with their gift, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. But God had mercy on him and Paul by sparing him the loss of a friend. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus and they are worthy of imitation. Paul then turns to his own story as an example. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, remember his letter to the Galatians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul and they keep reminding him of his own past. When he used to persecute Jesus' followers, when he tried to show his right standing before God by his zealous obedience to the laws of the Torah. But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He now regards all of it as filth. And the word he uses is actually much less polite. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus, to participate in his suffering and sacrificial love. And he does all of it in the hope that Jesus' love will carry him through death and out the other side into resurrection. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven, which for Paul does not mean that we should all hope to get away from earth and go to heaven one day. Rather, heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. And he says we're eagerly awaiting our royal savior to come from there and return here to bring his kingdom of healing justice and transforming love to bring about a new creation. Paul then challenges the Philippians to keep living out the Jesus story. He first addresses two prominent women leaders in the church who worked alongside Paul, and they're in some kind of conflict. And so Paul pleads with them to follow Jesus' example of humility, to reconcile and become unified. Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them 
peace. And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his greatest teachers, showing him that no matter his circumstances, he has learned the secret of contentment. It's simple dependence on the one who strengthens him. Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. The letter to the Philippians gives us a unique window into Paul's own heart and mind. He saw his entire life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And you can sense in this letter his close connection to Jesus, his awareness that Jesus' love and presence is closer than his own skin. And that's what gave him hope and humility in his darkest hours. And so Paul shows us that knowing Jesus is always a deeply personal transforming encounter. That's the kind of Jesus that Paul invites others to follow. And that's what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. That's good stuff. Like, I feel like we can just go home now. <laughs> but you're not, so. Um, one of the things that I love about this particular letter that Paul writes to this church uh, is it's just filled with Paul's love for them. Like you can just tell, in fact, we're going we're gonna to talk about this in a minute because this is one of the first things that he mentions to them when he writes this letter. Uh, Paul had gone to uh, Philippi, which was actually in Europe. So uh, Philippi is in, at this time, Macedonia, which is now modern-day Greece. And this is the first time that the gospel actually goes uh, out of uh, what's considered at that time Asia, which we would kind of think of as the Middle East today. And uh, Paul brings it to Greece. They're the first people in modern-day Europe that hear the gospel. And even though they're not a wealthy church, uh, they're an incredibly generous church. And every time Paul thinks about them, he just can't help but smiling. Uh, I was a youth pastor for like 15-ish years. Uh, I worked at a Chinese church. True story. Uh, the entire service was in Chinese, and I didn't speak a lick of Chinese, uh, but they wanted a, a, a youth pastor who spoke English because all of their kids uh, were growing up in America, and they wanted someone. So I, I did that, and that was awesome. I uh, worked at a church uh, in Ohio, for which I hope one day God will forgive me. Uh, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Ohio's not that bad. Am I kidding? No, I loved that church. Uh, I learned so much. Uh, that was my first job in ministry in Akron, Ohio. I worked at a church in Chicago, which is my city. I love Chicago. And then God, back in 2001, called uh, Brenda and I here to Grand Rapids. And uh, I didn't want to move to Grand Rapids. Uh, they said Grand Rapids was a great place to raise a family, which sounded like insider speak for super boring. Uh, and, and it was back in 2001, uh, but Brenda and I uh, obeyed God and moved here and worked at Calvary Church and loved our time. And not only that, but we fell in love with this city. And now Grand Rapids is my city. 
and I love it. I love living here. I love the people here. Uh, but one of the things uh, about being a youth pastor uh, that really gets me uh, in, a, in a, like, my heart is when I see my former students later in life and they're still following after Jesus. In fact, there's some of you in here uh, that I had the privilege of being your youth pastor back when you were in middle and high school, which is crazy to think about. Uh, I want to tell you two stories uh, of a couple of my former students. They, they don't go to church here. They do come visit uh, every now and then. Uh, one is uh, Ryan and Ashley Van Ravensway. And uh, Ryan and Ashley um, were both in my youth group, and Jordan was actually there at the time as well. Uh, Dave McGovern may have been also. I don't remember what the times were when they overlapped, but um, uh, Ryan and Ashley kind of lost track uh, of them after God had called us out and uh, was working out in Holland, and uh, we reconnected uh, after TLC started. Uh, Ryan and Ashley uh, were kind of attending here a little bit, uh, but also he had just gotten a new job in Detroit, uh, and so they were uh, living over there. They just bought their first house, and uh, Ryan kept texting me these awesome text messages telling me about people that he was working with that he was sharing the gospel with. Uh, God's just given him a heart um, for the Muslim community, the Middle Eastern community uh, there in, in Detroit. And so he would keep telling me about like, hey, I, I was talking with my coworker and, and uh, I started sharing a little bit about my faith because they started asking me some questions about it. And uh, we're having them over for dinner. Uh, and I feel like the Spirit's just asking me to like tell him more about my story. And, and he's like, would you pray with me? I'm like, like as a, as a youth pastor who now has those kids that have grown up and they're living it out like that, I'm like, ah, like that's, that gets me fired up. Uh, there's, there's another couple, uh, Jonathan and Shonda Fenning. And uh, Shonda grew up in, in, in our youth group. My wife was actually her small group leader. And I had the privilege of uh, doing their wedding. And they live down in Indiana. Uh, Shonda's a teacher down there, and they're engaged in their church and, and really trying to live out their faith. And well, there was a little girl uh, in her class uh, whose mom um, wasn't able to take care of she and her little sister anymore, and, and the state was going to have to step in, and dad wasn't in the picture. And uh, Shonda and Jonathan felt like God was saying, uh, I want you to step into their lives and become foster parents. And so they did. And for the last year or so, they've been raising. Uh, these two uh, beautiful little girls to give them a place of safety and a place of, of security. And I, and I look back on a former student, this, this little punk young girl in middle school who's now living out her faith alongside of her husband in just beautiful and amazing ways. And, and I look at that and that just fires me up. And I think that's exactly how Paul felt when he's writing this letter to the Philippians. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up with me. We're going to just look at the first 11 verses today, and we're really only going to focus on a, on a couple of them, really two sections, verses 3 to 6, and then uh, verses 9 through 11. But let's read, starting in verse 1. Paul says this. Oh, if you need a, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and uh, somebody will make sure to grab a Bible for you. If you're not sure where Philippians is at, it's about this far back. <laughs> and uh, if that doesn't help you, open up to the table of contents in the front, and it'll tell you what page number it is. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, 
to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very common way to open a letter at that time. Okay? So today we might say, Dear Brenda, and that's like our common opening. Theirs is a lot more flowery and longer, but uh, that's basically, he's saying, hey, uh, it's me, Paul, and my homeboy, Timothy, who was basically like his protege, a guy that he was kind of growing, discipling, a guy that he had led to the Lord, and so they're there together, and we know at this point, Paul is in prison in Rome, okay? And uh, he's writing to God's holy people. He reminds them of who they are, right? Their identity in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And then he mentions the overseers and deacons. That's like the leadership team. Speaking of leadership team, um, our elders, because we get this question sometimes, our elders are actually central's elders, our sending church. Uh, But one of the things that we knew that God was calling us to do as a church as we kind of grew up and matured is that uh, we would uh, be praying about who God might be inviting into a leadership team uh, here at TLC. And so I've been praying through that and trying to listen to the Spirit, and uh, there's some folks that I have begun having some conversations with, and when we have our very first owners meeting, which we've mentioned, uh, coming up on June 23rd, uh, at that meeting, I'm going to introduce you to the people that I believe God has called uh, to be in, leader, in a, a part of a leadership team uh, here at TLC. But he's, Paul's writing to these folks. He just wants them all to know, like, hey, uh, we see you. Uh, we're excited about you. Don't forget who you are. Then he goes on in verse 3, and this is when it starts to get really, really good. Like, Paul just gets into it right away. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, or till Jesus returns, all right? Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Mm. Come back with me to verse 3, would you? Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Paul has so much joy when he thinks about these folks. And so there's two reasons for his joy. The first one is Paul has joy when he prays for them because of the Philippians partnering and participation with Paul. All right? They partner and participate with Paul. Now, the word here, he just... It just says partnership in our Bibles. But in the original language, it had the kind of dual concept of partnering. We're doing it together. But you're also participating. Okay, So he's talking about the gift that they have sent him. And he's saying, you're, you giving me this gift allows me to continue because uh, in a Roman prison, you didn't get fed. Your, your basic needs weren't met. Like You had to rely on people on the outside that were going to also take care of you. 
And, and so Paul had folks in Rome that were doing that. All right, Timothy's with them. There's some other people that are, that are there in Rome. They're taking care of him. In fact, we're going to find out Paul's like such a baller. He's like sharing his faith with all the folks in Caesar's household. And like even some of those folks are starting to help out. But he's still in need. And the Philippians hear about that. And even though they're not a wealthy church, they're like, we've got to help our boy Paul. And when, he, when, he does, when they do that, Paul's like, yo, you are partnering with me by doing this. So what I'm doing, what God's doing through me, like there's a partnership that's actually taking place here. That you actually get credit for the things that God's doing through me because of your help. But it's not just that. It's not just partnership because they're giving him some money, taking care of him. There's also a, an idea of participating. In other words, Paul's saying it's not just because what you give. It's also because of what you're doing. You see, they didn't just think like, oh, I'm going to give Paul some stuff and he's going to do the work. I'll give him some money. I'll hook him up with some food. He'll do the work. And, and, and like, that's all good. No. They're not only doing that, they're also living out what Paul's taught them, and they're sharing the gospel, and they're talking about it. There's this concept of partnership and participation. Now, uh, they're doing it with a generous heart, and they've been generous from the beginning. Paul actually mentions that. Like, from the very beginning, they've been generous, and they're generous even today. And what I love about the Philippians is that they do not have a scarcity mindset. They've got an abundance mindset. Have you ever heard the difference between those two things? Like a scarcity mindset is like, yo, there's not enough for all of us, so I got to protect what I got. I got to try to get more so that I can hold on to it, and I don't want to give much away because there might not be enough to, to, to go around. That's a scarcity mindset. An abundance mindset says uh, there's always more. And so I can give freely because I'm not worried that it's not going to be enough for me. Um, I was reading a story a couple weeks ago, uh, a guy named uh, Levi uh, had written it, it was regarding his time when he was in Auschwitz. A horrendous uh, place, uh, horrendous conditions. Uh, I had the privilege of visiting Auschwitz uh, on a number of different occasions. Uh, in fact, my youngest son, Maximilian Kolbe, Scott, is named after Father Maximilian Kolbe, who died at Auschwitz. Uh, Father Kolbe was known for his generosity in that place of horrors. Uh, Levi shares a story, not about Colby, but about some, uh, a time when they were uh, there. And let, let, me, let me read it to you. Uh, he describes how he and a couple of other guys worked to light a fire to bring some warmth into these overstuffed, crowded barracks in the winter. Uh, he says the goal was to try to bring a little bit of relief uh, to those that were dying and he writes, when the broken window was repaired and the stove began to spread its heat, something seemed to relax in everyone. And at that moment, Tovarovsky, a 23-year-old with typhus, proposed to the others that each of them offer a slice of bread to us three who had been working. And so it was agreed. Only a day before, says Levi, this would have been inconceivable. The law of the camp said... Eat your own bread, and if you can, that of your neighbor. To do otherwise would have been suicidal. The offer of sharing bread was the first human gesture that occurred among us. I believe that that moment can be dated as the beginning of the change by which we who had not yet died slowly changed from prisoner to men again. 
You see, friends, Christians are supposed to live with an abundance mindset. We're supposed to be the most generous folks on the planet. Why? Because our God owns everything. And our God is in control. And even when it looks like the world around us is falling apart, when it looks like there's not enough to go around, when it feels like what God's word says doesn't match up with reality, those who trust in faith that what God actually says he's going to do can understand that they get to live in an abundance mindset. And that's who the Philippians were. And that's why when Paul thinks of them, he can't help but start to smile. He has mad joy in his heart. He's so excited. In fact, I think that's actually kind of one of the reasons that Paul's letter is a little bit scattered. Like usually he takes an idea and then he like follows it through a letter. Like he's got something. This one's just like he just can't stop talking about different things. There's joy. Uh, The second reason that Paul has joy is because of verse 6. He is confident that God's going to complete the work that God has started. Look at what he says. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. All right? So uh, this kind of gets back to what we talked about in our last series. Remember our series, Moments That Make Us, right? And and at the beginning, uh, we talked about the fact that we can change. The transformation is actually possible, but it doesn't come by how hard we strive, how hard we try. It actually comes by living into our new identity, all right? And I actually quoted this verse, that what God began, God's going to bring to completion. He's going to finish it up, that he's faithful, he's good. A lot of times we think to ourselves, but can I actually be different? Can I actually change? And we wrestle with that. I do. Like, I, I, I wonder that real question, right? Because I got some stuff that's easy. It's like not a big deal. Like I knew I needed to change it. I kind of just like made the decision. God kind of helped me. And it's been. And there's other things that are a lot harder. And I have to say like I'm going to trust that what God started, he's going to bring to completion. And that it's not about how hard I work and how much I try. It's about living into this new identity that I am who God says I am even when I don't always feel like it. You know what God says about us, right? That we are holy. I love that he starts that off with the Philippians, right? That we're declared set free from sin, that we're declared good, that we're declared full of good deeds. These are the things that are our new identity. That is our reality. Now, we don't always feel that way, right? I mean, imagine if you were born without legs. And uh, your whole life, that's just kind of how you lived. And you learned to walk around on your hands, and you could do all kinds of stuff and take care of yourself, and like it was pretty cool. All that you had overcome, and then a miracle of God and science, and you are grafted onto your body two amazing legs. All right? And, and, And the science... Uh, makes them part Usain Bolt, part Lionel Messi, and part Michael Jordan. All right, we're talking about like awesome legs, right? Or, or that wouldn't be awesome if you're a lady, probably too hairy, but maybe uh, Allison Felix, Alex Morgan, and Lisa Leslie, okay? Like, you got some great legs. They're amazing. They're awesome. You can do so much with them. 
But when you first got them grafted on, you wouldn't know how to use them. It would take weeks and months and years of a team of people walking with you, helping you, doing the rehab, retraining your brain to know how to utilize that which is now true and real of you. There'd probably be times when you'd rather walk around on your hands because it's just what you're used to. It's what you know. You see, guys, in Christ, that which we are not used to is now our new identity, our new reality. And Paul wants the Philippians to understand that, but not just the Philippians, you too, and me. <laughs> and what God started, he's going to actually complete. And that's why he gave us the church. And a lot of times, like, you're like, yo, this is not a greatest team of, like, rehab professionals. Yeah, we get it. We're imperfect. But we're in it together. And we're going to encourage each other. And when we fall short, right, when we want to start walking on our hands again, we say, yo, 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 you got legs. <laughs> we can do this. And we will learn to walk and run and dunk. That would be awesome. I've always wanted to dunk. Paul's got joy because of those two things. Now, uh, he starts to gush in verse 7. He's like, yo, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. He's like, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, like whatever I'm doing, I can uh, testify that I share or that you share in God's grace with me. I can, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's like, look, I just, I love you guys. I'm, I love you so much. And then he goes on and he gives a prayer. Okay, and this is what I want to close with this morning. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. His prayer is that they would grow in love towards God and towards one another. And he says in two ways. The first one, he says, is in knowledge. Okay? That they would grow in knowledge. Now, this is just kind of general spiritual understanding. He wants them to understand, like, who God is, right? What God desires, that we could trust in what God says is true. That when God says it, it's more true than maybe even the reality that we find ourselves living in now. And then the second thing he says is depth of insight. Now, uh, Dr. Frank Thielman is a New Testament scholar. He says this about it, I thought was super helpful. Paul's term for depth of insight, uh, which actually is, this is the only time in the New Testament that this word in the Greek gets used, all right? But we do have other uh, uh, things that were written at this time that use this word, and we know that in this ancient Greek literature, it often refers to the idea of moral perception, the ability to recognize something. So that is the ability to know the right action in a given situation. Paul's like, look, my prayer is that you're going to grow in love. Which is an interesting thing to say, right? He doesn't say, my prayer is that you grow in knowledge so that, blah, 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 blah. He says, my prayer is that you grow in love so that you'll grow in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you'll know what to do in a given situation. So that you know what God cares about and what God desires. And he says the whole reason for that is so that you would actually have some fruit of righteousness. Like, what the heck is fruit of righteousness? We talk about these Christian words all the time, right? You need to bear fruit. Like, man, what are you talking about, bro? 
<laughs> I think we sometimes, even as Christians that grew up in the church, like we throw out these words, but like we're not even sure exactly what it means. What does fruit of righteousness mean? Well, I'm so glad you asked. We're supposed to be kind, right? And patient and generous. We do what's right even when it's hard. We're supposed to forgive and speak truth and offer grace and love one another. Look, an apple tree produces apples, and a peach tree produces peaches, and a Christian produces righteousness. That's our fruit. And righteousness is just right living, believing what God says and acting on it, caring for people that need to be cared for, putting others first above ourselves, being generous with what God has given us, our time, our talent, our treasures, being willing to forgive somebody that has offended us because how much Christ has forgiven us. Being willing to do the hard thing, even when it's inconvenient, even when people are going to say you're stupid for doing so. So, what is my prayer for you? Uh, Paul's prayer for the Philippians came out of his relationship. And uh, Paul loved the Philippians. You guys are my Philippians. I've been at a number of churches, and, and I've enjoyed every single one of them. But when I think about TLC, in fact, I was just telling the group that we were praying together earlier. I'm sitting at Starbucks last night. I'm just walking through the, the message. I'm kind of cleaning a couple of things up. And, and I started thinking about this and thinking about you guys, and I started smiling. And I think people at Starbucks already think I'm a little bit weird. Because sometimes I'll be there by myself, and I'm like preaching the message, but my mouth's moving, but nothing's coming out. And I know they're like, dude, that dude's got some issues. But like, I'm sitting there, and, and I'm thinking of you guys last night, and I'm smiling. Because I love this church. I love that I get to be your pastor. I love to see the kind of spiritual growth that's taking place in your lives. When I hear about you sharing your faith and giving testimony of what God's doing... When I hear about you inviting people that are like, yo, you just need to come check this out because God's doing something in my heart and, and, and I want you to experience that. When, when I hear about the ways that you guys are serving, I was just talking with one dude who's like, I, I feel like I really need to in, engage in some of this human trafficking stuff. God's been laying on my heart and I know I need to actually do something about it. I'm like, ah, yes. When I see people that are loving on our kids, recognizing that when they serve in kids ministry that it's not, not just about childcare, but they're actually raising up young disciples, followers of Jesus, when I see folks that are pouring into the lives of our students here in high school and middle school and how they just pour themselves out. I know some of the girls got together today to go get coffee at like some stupid hour, 8 a.m., I think. It's a terrible idea. But I, like, I'm great. Like, I'm so, like, you know what? When I hear that, my, I, I smile. I love this place. I love what God's, you're my Philippians. And so I think about you and I have joy. And so this is my prayer for you. My prayer is that your love for God and one another would grow like wildfire. That you would be so infatuated with Jesus that you couldn't wait to know more of what he wants from you and for you. And that you would trust that what he wants for and from you is always best, even when the culture you live in tries to tell you that you are foolish or backwards or unloving, or jerks, or idiots, or naive, that not only would you trust God in that moment, but 
you would trust, uh, but that trust would lead to action. To live your life in such a way that what God says is not only true, but lived out and experienced for the good it truly is. That's what I want for our church. And so the application this morning is simply this. Will you accept my prayer for you? That's it. Will you accept my prayer for you? And if you will accept my prayer for you, then I would ask you to make it your prayer for us. So if you need to pull out a phone, let's put that back up there for two seconds. If you need to pull out a phone or you need to write me an email, I'll send it to you. You can take a picture of it. If you will accept my prayer for you, I ask that you would make that your prayer for us together. Because friends, if we can help one another fall in love with Jesus, everything starts to take care of itself. If you can get infatuated with Jesus, you can't, you can't help but want to read his word. You can't help but want to understand what he thinks. You can't help but want to be kind to others and generous and patient. And you, you fall in love with Jesus, you get filled up with Jesus, right? And it starts to overflow all around you. You bump into somebody at the, at the store, you spill some Jesus on them. Like that's, that's my desire for you and for me. Let's be a church full of Jesus, filled up with Jesus, our love for him taking over our lives like a wildfire. Father God, we want to serve you and know you, but more than anything, we want to love you so that our words and our thoughts and our actions flow out of that love. We love you because you first loved us. And Jesus, you set a pattern for us that we want to follow. So would you allow us to follow that pattern? A pattern marked by love, by generosity, by kindness and caring. That this world, our neighborhoods and our families, our workplaces, would recognize that you are real and true and good, and better. We love you, Jesus. Thanks for loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.